Please remain standing for our scripture reading. Today it will be from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Jeff. Well, as you will notice, we're stepping outside of Mark's gospel, or I'm sorry, John's gospel, and stepping into Mark's gospel to consider the triumphal entry. Um, What we celebrate, acknowledge on Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And it comes on the heels of, at least for us, Jared taking us through uh, the feeding of the 5,000 last week. And uh, you'll, you'll remember that text, at the end, the people wanted to make Jesus king, declare him as Lord. That's fitting, isn't it? And yet Jesus withdraws from them, doesn't allow it. Because they want to make Jesus king on their own terms. In fact, some commentators on that passage, we, we, it's a cl- Sunday school classic, right? And you can imagine, even in the curriculum, you see the little Jesus grassy hill. There's families, and they're happily getting their fill of food. And it's 5,000 men. It's in the country. This is zealot country where Jesus is doing this. And they probably are wanting to crown. It says they want to take him by force. They're likely zealots who believe that the kingdom of God will arise through military conquest. So they want to make Jesus their military commander, their general, to crush Rome. But that's not what Jesus came to do. Not this time. And this passage here that we just looked at, something similar is going on. It's very tempting. I mean, we all have a blueprint for our own lives, do we not? We have kind of an agenda, a way in which we think our lives should go. And we oftentimes think that what having Jesus become Lord means is that we get Jesus to kind of help us achieve our blueprint for life. That Jesus can, to the extent that he can help us with our agenda, then we'll take him. 
And so let's say the problem's like romantic uh, relationships. That's what we need. A boyfriend, a girlfriend, whatever it is. Then we call upon Cupid Jesus to help address that need. Or maybe we just had a, a baby and we're, we don't know what to do. We're parents, we're new parents, so we call upon baby whisperer Jesus. Or maybe we feel as though the world, the America is like falling apart. It's unraveling. We've turned and, 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 and we need American Jesus to get the country back on track. The crowds back at the feeding of 5,000, they wanted military Jesus. They, they felt like their perceived problem was Rome. If we could get Rome out of the way, then we could solve the problem. So they called upon military Jesus. In, in, in any of those cases, what we're saying to Jesus is, Jesus, I know the plans I have for you, Jesus, plans to address my felt needs, plans to make me thrive and me flourish as I see it. We've seen this time and time again in John's gospel. This keeps popping up, this desire to make Jesus conform to us. Remember the uh, genie Jesus, right? Jesus in the lamp. But that's not how it works. Jesus is the designer. Jesus is the architect of our lives. It's his plans, not our plans. But here's the question. If Jesus is going to be king over our lives, king on his terms, how do we trust him? That's a really important question, isn't it? If you're going to throw your life onto another person, you got to know that you can trust that person. How can we trust Jesus? Now, you, it, we'll quickly say, of course I trust Jesus. He's God. But I want to suggest that on an hour-by-hour basis, our hearts are constantly questioning Jesus' kingship in our lives, right? It's as though our hearts want to doubt. We want to crumple up the plans of Christ and throw them in the wastebasket and turn to our own way, our own outlook, our own view of the world and follow, follow that, follow that map, follow our blueprint, Well, Palm Sunday and all the events of Holy Week give a resounding yes to the question of whether we can trust Jesus. A resounding yes. I mean, you know, I'm trying to think of examples in our own lives where we put our lives, we entrust our lives to another person. One example that came to mind was uh, surgery. At some point, whether big or small, many of us will probably have some sort of surgery, and you're laying, you're out oftentimes on a table. Your life is in the hands of this surgeon. You want to see a couple of things, right? You want to see control. You want to see that the surgeon has kind of a, a mastery of the situation, that they understand the human body, that they understand modern medical science, and they understand how to fix the problem that you have. You want to see that. You want to see control. But you also want to see care. You want to see that surgeon operating on you as though they were operating on their own child. That they're, they're not trying to make money off of you. They're not trying to whatever. They're trying to get you better. They have care for you. You want to see control and you want to see care. Another example, if you like, whitewater rafting. 
You know, if most of us, most of us, when we do that, we have guides that take us. And the guide, we want to see that they have control, that they know what they're doing, that they know how to get down a river, whitewater rapids, navigate the raft, use the paddle. We want to see control, but we also want to see care. We, we don't want them to be sort of diabolical and kind of trying to rock the boat and make people think they're going to fall off and be mean. No, the whitewater rafting guide needs control and care. And that's what we want in someone that we entrust our lives to. And that's what the, the two things that Jesus is going to demonstrate in this Palm Sunday text. His, his control, the king's control, and the king's care. Those are the two points. Actually, there's three points. The king's control, the king's care, and then the final point is the crowd's confusion. Okay, so first, the king's control. Look at verses 2 and 3. Jesus tells two of his disciples, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, while you are doing this, say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back immediately. Now, this is a pretty remarkable thing that Jesus is telling two of his disciples to do. To try to, it's easy for us maybe to kind of miss the, the craziness of it. Let's imagine, though, that on the 4th of July parade in Edmond, downtown Edmond, busy hustle, bustle, busy place, I tell you that there is parked outside of um, Cafe Evoke a Ford Ranger. It has zero miles. There is a key in the ignition. I want you to go down there amidst the hustle and bustle, get into the car, Turn it on, pull it out. If the owner says, what are you doing with my car? Tell them the Lord has need of it and we'll bring it back and be on your way. That's what Jesus asked them to do. And what we're seeing here is that Jesus has control over the situation. He has an understanding, a mastery of the moment of which he is a part. He's like, he's like a good king. Like you want a king that has control. Just like you want a surgeon that has control. Because things are about to get really hairy in Jerusalem. It's about to go crazy for Jesus and his disciples. The, 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 the clashes between the Jewish leadership and Jesus are going to hit a high. So high that he's going to be put to death. It's going to feel as though things are out of control. It's like the surgeon, the, the lights are flashing and the indicators are, are indicating and everything, you know, something's going wrong in the surgery and the surgeon is calmly working, masterfully doing what needs to be done. Jesus is saying, look, we're going into Jerusalem. It's going to get crazy. I've told you what, I've, what I'm going to do. You haven't, I don't think you've gotten it yet, disciples, but know this, I'm in control. I'm in charge. James Edwards, a commentator, says, Jesus is not entering Jerusalem here in this passage as an unknowing victim, but with foreknowledge and sovereignty. We might say with competency and control. That's what Jesus is demonstrating that he has. Now, the disciples who are going to really question Jesus' control in all of this, his, his sovereignty, his mastery of the situation, they're going to wonder. Um, 
we have the same temptation to wonder when we feel as though our lives are out of control, that our marriage feels like it's in shambles, right? There's strain in our family. There's strain in our relationships. There's strain within this congregation. Is God, is God there? Is he in control? Throughout all the craziness of Holy Week, all the unraveling, all the spiral, the promises of God not only hold, but this week is the very means by which they are realized. All the promises of God. The moment that feels to the disciples most out of control is the moment when all of the promises are being fulfilled, are being made effective, are being realized. I mean, think about it. The disciples have given their whole lives to Jesus, this rabbi. They've they've left their livelihoods. They've left family. They've left all sorts to follow Jesus. And it all just feels like it's just unraveling by the second. But he's in charge. He's in control. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, I have no problem with God's control. In fact, that is my problem. I if God is in control, if Jesus is in control, then why are these things happening to me? He must not care if this sort of stuff has come into my life, whatever it is. And that brings us to our second point, the king's care. His control is directed, fueled by, energized by his care, his love. Okay, so the king's care. Now, and the key for seeing this is his mount, the, what he gets on, right? A donkey. It's a humble beast. He's not fancy panting his way into Jerusalem on a Tennessee walker. He's not warhorsing his way on the black stallion. He's riding a humble beast, a beast of burden, humility. That's what marks his entry, not majesty, it's humility. And this is why we can trust him. Because he's not just in control, but he cares. He loves. A book that's been popular, and I've quoted it many times since the new year began, is Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly. I encourage you to read it. We're going to get a book table at some point, and that, that book will be on it as well as others. But it's a good book. But the thesis of the book is that Jesus reveals his heart In one place in the Gospels where he says, come to me all ye who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Um, And he says in that, in those verses that he is, his heart, he is gentle and lowly in heart. That's his heart. Gentle and lowly. And we see that through through the Gospels, right? Every ounce of power which, by the way, is the power that created the world. It's all power. And every ounce of it in the Gospels, every ounce of Jesus' power, is used for the benefit and service of others. It's powerful. He's calming storms with just words. There's legions of demons that have given a man superhuman strength. And when Jesus just shows up, the man runs to him like an obedient golden retriever, the, the, the demons, and they bow before him, begging for mercy. And he directs them with just single word commands. Sickness. He says, be well, and people are, are well. 
people that are, that are dead are brought back to life by the power of his word. In fact, the one time that we see in the Gospels where he is tempted to use his power, where he's at least given the opportunity to give, use his power for himself, is it the temptation? Turn these stones to bread. You're hungry. Come on, Jesus, you can do it. And certainly he could do it. But that would have undermined his whole purpose of coming. It wasn't for himself. It was for others because he's humble. And that's what humility is. It's considering the needs of others before our own needs. So that's his care. Now, let's final point that we're going to consider is the crowd's confusion. The crowds get it, sort of. They kind of understand what's going on, but not entirely. Uh, think, you know, if you are an oppressed people, you cling to promises of freedom from that bondage. If, if, or if you're a people that are, you know, find themselves trapped in war, you cling to promises of peace. And so for thousands, for millennia, the people of Israel have been oppressed in some form or fashion, whether it was the Egyptians or the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. They're, they're latching on to promises of a coming king. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 and 10, is one of those promises. And so on the one hand, they, they get what's going on. Right? They understand the, the prophet's words that we read at the outset from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the people see it and they're thinking, Zechariah chapter 9. Remember what comes after this arrival? Peace. Flourishing. Everything our hearts long for. It's the coming of the Messiah. And so what do they do? It's fitting what they do. They, they throw their cloaks down before him. Now, a person's cloak in this time had a, had a lot of significance. You could almost think of it like a driver's license. It was like your identity. Um, like Joseph, remember jo Jacob gives his son, Joseph, a coat? His brothers weren't just jealous because he got like a fancy coat. It was because embedded in that coat was everything that Jacob had. It was, Gordon Hugenberger, uh, Old Testament scholar um, and pastor, says that it, it, the inheritance of Jacob was bound up in Joseph's coat. Your whole life was embedded somehow in your cloak. And so as the people are throwing their cloaks down before the Lord, they're, they're, they're saying, my life is yours. I submit myself to you. They're like rolling out the red carpet for him, so to speak, with their cloaks. That's what's happening. It's a fitting response because it's what the king demands, right? Your whole life, everything. And yet, confusion remains. Verse 10, we see it here. They say this. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Now, that's a little off. 
Because if it was son of David language, that would make sense. But blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. It's not quite right. The kingdom of God is not the same as the Davidic, the David's kingdom. It's not the same. It's not just a repeat of what was before. It's something entirely new. It's the son of David, not the father David, that matters in, in, in redemptive history. So they're a little off here. And what it, what it highlights again, and we're going to see the response of the crowds later gives proof to this. There's misunderstanding. There's confusion on what exactly Jesus the King is doing. Leslie Newbegin says this, the, the sentence, Jesus is Lord, is a true confession. If you're a grammarian, you'll like this. The sentence, Jesus is Lord, is a true confession only if the subject, Jesus, has taken complete control of the predicate, Lord. Only if sovereignty is defined by Calvary. And I might add, only if his control and power is defined by his care, his love, his humility, his grace, his compassion. Only if the lordship is understood in terms of washing one another's feet. The people are saying, yes, Jesus is Lord, but they're wanting to retain sovereignty over the predicate, Lord. You're Lord so long as I can define what that means for my life. That's what the people are saying. Because they're not going to receive his lordship as the week goes on. They're not going to receive his glory as it's made evident on the cross. And Newbegin saying, look, if you're going to say Jesus is Lord, you've got to let the subject define the predicate. You've got to let Jesus define the lordship and what that looks like. But, Newbegin continues, doing that requires a total subversion of accepted human axioms. That's just not how we, that's not how we think. It's a total revolution in our thinking. Because what it says is, the way up is down, and the way to find your life is to lose it, and a way to live is to die. It just it doesn't comport in our minds. Doesn't make sense. The events of this weekend week don't make sense. And apart from the Spirit awakening us to the upside down, what to us seems like the upside down nature of the world, we we miss it. We miss it entirely. And John's been making this point over and over again. We miss it. We gotta have the Spirit awaken us to the Lord to what the Lordship of Christ means and looks like. Because it leads to a revealing of Jesus on the cross, which is a revealing of the heart of the universe, that Jesus' moment of glory, the moment when we're seeing what the triune God is really like, love pouring itself out for life and forgiveness and mercy. That's what the heartbeat of the universe is. And Jesus is showing it to us, and yet where are the people? They're responsible for his death. They're saying crucify him, many of these people in this crowd, or they've scattered entirely, including his own disciples who've betrayed him, they've left him, they're watching from a distance, fearful of what might become of them. 
Verse 11, the whole thing ends very anticlimactically. Look at what it says in verse 11. He, he entered Jerusalem. He went into the temple, the very heart of religious life for Israel. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That's, he goes in, he looks around, and he leaves. That all that for just a quick exit, a quick survey, an exit? The parable of the sower, do you remember Jesus giving this parable? Where he talks about seed that falls on rocky soil. And it, it flowers, like it comes to life. And we see life, but do you remember what happens to it? It quickly withers. And the reason it withers is because it's on the rock. It doesn't have, it doesn't have any connectedness to the life-giving soil. The response of the crowds on this day is like that seed. It, it looks alive, it sprouts, and there's signs of life. There's, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and yet it withers. It dies because it's not rooted to the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God. It doesn't have the life-giving soil that the Spirit brings into our lives to make fruit uh, grow from it. One commentator on, on, on verse 11 says, Even when he stands at the center of Israel's faith, he stands alone. And again, as the weeks of, of, or as the days of Holy Week would unfold, he would get lonelier and lonelier and lonelier. And the reason is because, this, because our sin would be placed upon him with all of its alienating effects, alienating him from humanity, alienating him from even the Father in some sense. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cry of dereliction, right? He felt it. He felt the weight of sin. And yet on the cross, grace and truth are mingling perfectly. Now, final question for us as we kind of bring this to a close. He calls us to follow him. And my question for you this morning is, will you do that? Will you follow the way of Jesus? Will you... Will you be gentle and lowly? Right? That's his heart. And if we accept him as Lord, we follow his heart. We don't follow our heart. So will you be gentle and lowly? If your kids interrupt you, poke you, what comes out? Gentleness, lowliness, or anger? Spouse pokes you, interrupts you, coworker kind of gets in your way of what you want to do. What comes out? What comes out of your heart? His heart, gentleness, lowliness, pours out grace, mercy, love. The only way, Jesus says, to live, and we're getting, we're, we're, again, the, the events of this week, we're putting in narrative form this week a thesis for the universe. This is how the world is really like. This week is going to tell us, Holy Week, and the events of it. It makes no sense to the world, but to those who believe it's the power of God, this week is going to un 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 unlock those secrets 
in a story form, a real story that happened in history. It's going to unlock it. And what we learn in that is that the only way to live is to die, to take up our own crosses, to live for others, to be caring as our Lord was, to depend upon his good and sovereign care. It doesn't make sense to the world. There's a, it never has. Um, there's a piece of gra- uh, graffiti in Rome from the second century that's been kind of dug up. And it's a man on a cross with a donkey head. And the caption reads, it's from, again from the second century, reads, Alexamenos worships his God. So somebody in the second century decided to make fun of a Christian, draw a man, donkey head, on a cross, making fun of the person. And that's, and of course, that much worse happened to the Christians in the early church than, than being made fun of. I mean, they would have been like, you know, water on a duck's back. They're getting burned at a stake and dying likely for their faith. But what it does is it highlights the foolishness of, of all of this to the world. It just doesn't make sense. Nietzsche ridiculed it as a slave's religion. But for us who, who believe, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it is the wisdom and power of God. And this moment, the moment of Christ's death, resurrection, initiated a tide of love that is transforming the whole world as far as the curse is found. And not just transforming us with great breath, like the whole universe, but also transforming with depth all the way down to the very deepest facets of our hearts will be transformed by this tide of love. And that's the point. His control, actually, this is maybe kind of the twist, his control, his power, his majesty, is his care. It is his love for us. It's his love that has the transforming power. It's the gospel that's the power, the love of Christ. And so back to the question that we began with. Do you trust him? Would you let him ride into the very center of your heart to reign, to extend his mercy and power of his spirit in your life to transform you? Would you let him do that? Would you invite him to? Because he's coming back. He won't be riding on a donkey. Revelation says he'll be on a war horse with a sword coming out of his mouth and his eyes will be lit with fire where he sees all the way into us. And he will bring his judgment and establish his kingdom perfectly in the world. But until then, he's inviting sinners to come to him to receive his mercy and his love and his care, to receive every good thing that he has to give. He wants to give it to us when we come to him. Would you throw your cloak down, right? Your very life for him. He threw his cloak down for you. He threw his life down for you. And by it, we are saved. Let's let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for uh, the truths of Holy Week. This is the pinnacle of the Christian year, Um, a time where we were reminded of your great work. And we pray that you would 
help uh, weave this work deeper and deeper into our hearts so that we might live in a way that reflects how you've called us to live, that all the promises would be realized in our midst, in our community, the healing and the, the power and the unity and the peace that marks people that have been touched by your grace. That would be true. That would be made manifest in our midst. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.